From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense. I'm John Wiener. Later in the hour, Richard Wright was America's most famous black writer in the 1940s and 50s with Native Son and his character Bigger Thomas, but his place on the throne was shakier than he imagined. Adam Schatz will talk about black America and black American writing at mid-century. But first, Texas politics is always interesting, and it's getting more interesting every day. We read daily horror stories about the latest actions of Republican Governor Greg Abbott, empowering vigilantes to turn in abortion providers, banning private businesses from requiring COVID vaccines. But a recent poll found that only 42% of registered voters there say he deserves to be reelected in 2022. Can the Democrats defeat Greg Abbott? For comment, we turn to John Nichols. Of course, he's national affairs correspondent for The Nation. We reached him today, as usual, at home in Madison. Hi, John. Hello, John. It's good to be with you. Well, according to the Quinnipiac University poll of Texas registered voters, Governor Greg Abbott's approval rating is underwater for the first time since they began polling in Texas in 2018. Uh, Maybe this helps explain the uh, strange policies he's pushed for on abortion, on COVID vaccines, and on the border. Oh, it absolutely does. Um, Look, Greg Abbott's been a lousy governor. Uh, It's not a debatable point, and Texans recognize this. They recognize it for a lot of measures that people outside Texas don't pay attention to. Uh, and that is the fact that, that a lot of stuff in Texas is falling apart. Um, it, it's a mess of a state. And the evidence of that can be found in uh, what happened last winter when the power grid just you know literally melted down. And they tried to blame windmills and, and things, you know, and solar power and everything else. But the fact of the matter is they had done things in a classic Texas way. Um, you know, bartered off a lot of the uh, the basic operations to their political cronies and their economic buddies and created a mess. And a lot of people uh, were put in a terrible situation. There were deaths. There was a, a, a kind of a, a nightmare scenario for several weeks. And you see it again and again in Texas. And so people are sick and tired of how the state is, is run. Now, That doesn't change the fact that a lot of people in Texas are pretty conservative. In fact, a lot of them are socially conservative. And and so what you see with Abbott and his allies uh, in the legislature is a twofold approach. Number one, to make it harder for people who don't happen to be conservative Republicans to vote. That is a huge initiative, and Texas is on the cutting edge of it, not only with voter suppression, but literally with strategies to make it easier to overturn elections if they don't go your way. So that's a bad scene right there. Parallel to it is a series of actions that they hope will hyper-mobilize their base. And so that's where you see the anti-abortion measures, the attacks on trans students, you know, all sorts of other initiatives that are, you know, clearly uh, aimed at, at ginning up the vote among social conservatives. Now, the question is, is this all gonna work? We'll get to that in a minute. But first, we need to look at a little more of the political landscape there. 
This ban on private businesses from requiring COVID vaccines has not gone over that well with private businesses in Texas. Some of the biggest international corporations headquartered in Texas for tax reasons, American Airlines, Southwest Airlines, ExxonMobil, J.P. Morgan, all announced they would defy this ban. That's pretty unusual in American politics. Yeah, it is. You know, it's a, it's a pretty weird situation where you've got government um, trying to, you know, sort of deregulate at, at a level that business says, no, 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 we don't want, we don't want the heavy hand of government taken off in this situation. We would like the heavy hand of government to help us to make sure that our employees don't get sick and die. Um, and so, you know, it's, it, I think that, that, we should always be very, very careful about seeking to find nobility in corporations. <laughs> I know you and I, I have to say, ExxonMobil and J.P. Morgan, we haven't really talked in a very friendly way about them until today. Well, I'm not really going to do it much today either, but uh, but I will point out that, that that's a good measure of how extreme Greg Abbott and the Republicans in Texas have become. And, and it's something that goes way beyond Texas. In fact, almost everything we're talking about with Texas could be, uh, you know, paralleled or seen in Florida or South Dakota or a number of other states. And and that's an important thing to understand. It's just that, as they say in Texas, everything is bigger. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this situation with the uh, anti-masking stuff is, you know, it's really sort of like the wages of Trump's sins, uh, you know, kind of coming home to roost in, in particular places around the country. Donald Trump and Mark Meadows, his chief of staff, uh, refused to issue national masking orders at a time when they could have saved hundreds of thousands of lives in 2020. Uh, And eventually, even they, I think it's fair to say, came to realize they were wrong. But by the time they came to realize they were wrong, they had created a, a movement, if you will, within the Republican Party that sees masking mandates, that sees social distancing orders, all of these public health protections as somehow, you know, the equivalent of a communist takeover of the United States. And so, you know, even when Trump says, yeah, I got the vaccine, you know, and even like, I guess the best way to put it is in the Republican Party today, Trump is not the extremist. You know, he's he's very much in the mainstream middle of the Republican Party of today. Down in Texas, you're seeing Abbott, you know, kind of stake out more of the more of the extremes, kind of go to the real paranoia of the base. And I will note, it's important to point out that Abbott faces a Republican primary challenger who says he's not extreme enough. Let's talk about the Republican primary in Texas. Trump has endorsed Greg Abbott in the Republican primary. You'd think that would solve this question for all time, but far right-wing challengers have raised doubts about the sincerity of Trump's endorsement, and Trump has not tried to stop them. Trump is insisting, pushing Abbott to add an, uh, one of these election audit bills to the current special session in Texas. So Trump's support for Abbott does not really seem to be rock solid here. He's demanding that he do more. And so far, uh, as of today at least, Republican state legislatures in Texas have not passed the bill that Trump wants out of them. 
what is going on between the right, the far right, and the extreme far right in the Texas Republican Party? Yeah, it's it's sort of like you know, I mean, if you remember the the movie Spinal Tap, where the I think it was the guitar player had his his uh, amplifier, and he said he'd gotten this special amplifier, and and you could turn it up to eleven, <laughs> and you were like, well, you know, it, the interviewer is saying, yeah, well, really, you just wrote 11 on there and, and that it's they're made to go to 10 and and the guy goes no no if you turn it up to 11 you know like that's the hot that's the heaviest duty thing of all well texas is a place where there's always somebody who wants to turn it up to 11 or 12 or 13 and um and that's the bottom line it, it's it it is well recalled that uh I think John Kennedy was the one who flying into into uh, Dallas said, you know, well, we're in the land of the nuts. And um, and there has always been an extremism within the Texas Republican Party. Uh, it, historically, it isolated them and uh, and it was often kept under control by more of the corporate business sector. But what Trump has done is unleash the 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 worst of the extremists. And so Abbott's not, I, I doubt very much that Abbott's going to get beaten in his primary because he will look to his right and say, okay, I got to do that. I'll do that. And um, that's sort of the good news for Democrats because in this context, uh, you've got a situation where Abbott may move so far to the right and save himself in his Republican primary but really finally open up that, that possibility that people have been talking about for decades, where you can build a coalition of, uh, you know, the large Latinx population, the large Black population, uh, the substantial Asian American population, uh, as well as, you know, liberals in Austin, and a lot of suburban, you know, folks who probably over the last 20 years have been voting Republican, May, happily voted for the Bushes, but cannot quite stomach where Texas is headed. So who will the Democratic challenger to Greg Abbott be? We've all been kind of surprised to hear that Matthew McConaughey is being mentioned as a potential challenger. I did not know this, uh, that he was interested in politics. He is born in Texas. He went to the University of Texas. He starred in Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And also, know that I did not know that. <laughs> I I've got the Wikipedia page right. All right, yeah, I'm giving you credit. That I knew a lot of his. Uh, I knew a lot of his claims to fame, but but I'm that's that really believe, puts it over the top. I believe it is the sequel, Texas Chainsaw Massacre: The Next Generation. <laughs> okay, he also starred in Dallas Buyers Club. That should get him some some votes. Of course, we know I loved him in The Lincoln Lawyer and the HBO series True Detective. Of course, Beto is the obvious candidate, but let's just talk about Matthew McConaughey for a minute. Is this for real? Yeah, I, I think even Matthew McConaughey doesn't know the answer to that. <laughs> I can tell from listening to you, though, that you're a little excited about the prospect, <laughs> as, and, and certainly a lot of Texans are. There's a, you know, there's Texas is a state that uh, where politics always has a little bit more of uh, salsa. Right. It's got a little more energy and character. And um, and so uh, and, and some hot sauce, to be honest. Uh, you know, remember, Kinky Friedman ran a pretty credible uh, campaign for governor 
uh, as the guy who wrote uh, Kick Me Jesus Through the Goalposts of Life or something like <laughs> I, I hope I've got the title right. Um, and so you end up with a situation uh, where I think Texans, they, they sort of like like a little edge, a little, little more flavor. And um, McConaughey's got a good guy image, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's well, I think, well-liked by a lot of folks. And, and he's explored this possibility, but I don't, um, I don't necessarily think that he's reached the point, and I've watched it pretty closely, where he's like, you know, going to go for it. It's, it's a prospect. And um, the interesting thing about it is also the question of what he runs as. Yeah. Does he run as a Democrat? Probably not. Uh, as an independent, there's a possibility of that. Um, maybe some third party, who knows? It's still very much up for grabs. But yeah, it is discussed. And, um, and I don't think you can dismiss it. And we do have this interesting situation in America where, you know, I know people would say, well, an actor could never become governor of a state. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I said, I did say that in 1979. I said an actor could never become president. Uh, Having already seen it happen in your, in your adopted state. And, and or, you know, that a professional wrestler can't become governor. Um, it, a reference for our minute, for our Minnesota minute here. Yes, um, yes. So bottom line is that I think that McConaughey has to be taken seriously. He's for real uh, as a a prospect, but not necessarily for real as a candidate. So Beto is the obvious Democratic candidate. He's likely to announce soon, we are told. Of course, in 2018, he challenged the horrible Senator Ted Cruz and got, I believe, 48% of the vote. That's pretty darn good. It's very good. I covered that campaign. I went to Texas and saw, you know, what Beto O'Rourke did. And it was it was pretty amazing. Uh, he's underestimated as a candidate by a lot of people nationally, partially because of his kind of ham-handed attempt to, to become a presidential contender. Yeah. But what he did in Texas in 2018 was, was nothing short of amazing. He took a political party, the Democrats, who had not won, and in most cases hadn't even come close to a statewide win in the better part of a quarter century, and um, and brought him to the, the verge of victory. His his run was so strong that there it's credited with having elected uh, several members of Congress and members of the legislature down ballot just because of that higher level of turnout. So uh, it's definitely within the realm of reason. He looks to be the strongest potential contender. He's not the only one. There's other people that the Democrats are talking about, the mayor of Austin and other folks. But I think if O'Rourke gets into it, uh, he is likely to be likely to be the front runner and very likely to be the Democratic nominee. And that matters in a whole bunch of ways, because uh, in Texas, there is some history of, you know, folks who run once, don't make it, come back, run again and win. Uh, that counts for something. Also, while on the national level, O'Rourke's presidential run in 2000 didn't get him a lot of points, down in Texas, he did get a lot of points because when there was a horrible shooting in El Paso uh, during the course of the campaign, he basically put his campaign on hold, went home to El Paso and, and really uh, showed where his heart was. And since uh, the, since the end of his presidential run, uh, he's been a real presence again and again at the front lines in Texas. If there's a natural disaster, he's there handing out water. Um, If there is, you know, a, a political disaster, 
he's the person who's often on national TV or and at rallies, you know, standing up to Trump, standing up to Abbott. So he's in a pretty good position as a candidate. And you then get to the final question, can he win? Well, I mean, that's that's the, I guess, in a Texas campaign, probably like the 25 or $30 million question. Yeah. Um, you know, in 2020, let me just look at the 2020 numbers. Biden lost Texas by 631,000 votes. There's 17 million registered voters in Texas. That is incredibly close. There's a state with 29 million people, a lot of whom don't vote. Uh, this is, of course... The Republicans know these numbers very well, and that's why they're looking at voter suppression. But the demographic structure of Texas is almost identical to California's. But California is 100% Democratic, and Texas is, of course, very, very Republican. The best explanation for the difference between Texas and California that I know is there is no Latino labor movement in Texas the way there is, especially in L.A. County. L.A. County has succeeded in mobilizing millions and millions of new Democratic votes over the last uh, decade or two. So the question is, who in Texas can do the same kind of ground game, door-to-door, long-term voter engagement work that the L.A. County Federation of Labor has done in L.A. County? And there's a number of possibilities here. Um, Next Gen America, which is Tom Steyer's group, says they're going to spend uh, millions of dollars in Texas to turn out young voters. They say there's a million voters between 18 and 20 who have not voted recently. There's 565,000 people who are young progressives who call themselves progressives but are not registered. So if you need 633,000, this could come out of young voters, unregistered voters, and Tom Steyer's going to spend millions of bucks to, to help with that. There's the successor to ACORN in Texas, which is called TOP, the Texas Organizing Project. They've been doing this for a decade. They claim 285,000 organizers and supporters in communities of color. And there's something new called Ground Game Texas, which I don't know about. They say they're going to knock on one million doors across Texas uh, this year. They're endorsed by Julian Castro. What do you know about the uh, these these progressive groups focusing more on the long ground game of voter engagement? Yeah, there's a lot of it, and 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 you know, I I think it's important to understand that Texas has has a long, rich history of uh, grassroots activism and deep organizing that that goes back. To the 50s and the 60s, uh, you know Henry B. Gonzalez and people like that mounting statewide campaigns that that in those days didn't have much of a chance, but still at least broke the ground. Uh, as well as then, of course, Ralph Yarborough actually getting elected as a liberal Democratic senator, an anti-war Democrat during the Vietnam War, uh, and of course they they eventually beat him in a primary, but he served a couple terms, and so uh, you know. Texas is at once the state of Greg Abbott and the Bushes. It's also the state not that long ago of in, in political office of Jim Hightower and Ann Richards. Yeah. And so uh, I think that that now you do need a modern re-up of that, that historic Texas populist organizing model. And I think that uh, the Texas Organizing Project and other groups really are serious about this. And they've got a lot of vision. They're doing multiracial, multi-ethnic uh, organizing, and and I think crossing a lot of barriers. I think a lot of these people coming out of this project uh, and its allies are running for office. Uh, 
you know, at the local and regional level. And so I do think something's happening in Texas that's a big deal. And I enjoy, I've been down quite often to cover it because I think that as I look around the country, it's some of the most dynamic politics in the U.S. Now, uh, the challenge, of course, is uh, the voter suppression stuff is real. And and it's it is it's there for a reason. It's there to try and make it hard to vote. And the Republicans have done a lot in this regard. The other challenge is that no matter how much organizing you do, you have to have an exciting campaign. Right. You've got to have something dynamic. And you always say, well, oh, well, you know, Biden you know, came within 600,000 votes in Texas, which is really great. I, I happen to believe that Bernie Sanders would have done that well or better. Um, and, and I think especially because of his uh, success with Latinx voters uh, evidenced in not just Texas, but also in Nevada and other states. And so you want to look for a, a, a Democratic ticket in Texas up and down the ballot that is candidates, uh, again, coming from a multiracial, multiethnic background, coming from different regions of the state, but also being younger, more dynamic, more energetic. Uh, not just the the kind of old standard way of approaching this. If they do it, if you put that combination of an exciting campaign together with a lot of organizing, I, I think, and I, you know, you, we'll talk in November of 2022, but I, I think there is at least a reasonable possibility that uh, that you could see the breakthrough, that this could be the time, partially because the Republicans have destroyed their own brand, but also partially because the moment has come. John Nichols on Texas politics. This could be the time. Read him at thenation.com. Thank you, John. Always great to have you on the show. Thank you, brother. Now it's time to talk about Richard Wright. Before the 60s, he was America's most famous black writer. The author of two books hailed as classics when they were published, Native Son in 1940 and Black Boy in 1945. But his standing and reputation were shakier than anyone at the time imagined. And that story tells us a lot about black America at mid-century. For comment, we turn to Adam Schatz. Adam was the nation's literary editor. Now he's U.S. editor for the LRB, the London Review of Books, where he wrote about Richard Wright. He also writes for the New York Review, the New York Times Magazine, the New Yorker, and other publications. We reached him today at home in Brooklyn. Adam Schatz, welcome back. Great to be on again, John. Native Son is unforgettable for its central character, Bigger Thomas. Remind us about him. Bigger Thomas John is a poor uh, slum dweller who becomes a chauffeur for uh, a wealthy man uh, in Chicago, and he ends up committing two horrifying killings. The first uh, is a manslaughter, the, ac- the accidental killing of the chauffeur's uh, daughter. The, the second killing is a premeditated murder of his Black girlfriend, Bess, to prevent her from revealing what she knows about the other killing. There have been Black writers, really good Black writers, who criticized Richard Wright for Bigger Thomas starting pretty early. You quote James Baldwin in 1949. Who was James Baldwin in 1949? And what was his criticism of Native Son and Bigger Thomas? James Baldwin in 1949 was an up and coming 
writer from New York who had been publishing in places like the Partisan Review. And he was working on, on the novel, the autobiographical novel that would become Go Tell It on the Mountain. And Richard Wright had done a great deal to promote his career. He'd helped him to win a, a lucrative Eugene Saxton fellowship. He'd entertained him at his home. He'd introduced him to people. Uh, Baldwin ended up following uh, Richard Wright to Paris. And shortly after he got to Paris, he published uh, a piece about, about Harriet Beecher Stowe's Uncle Tom's Cabin, which concluded with uh, quite a critical uh, set of paragraphs about Native Son, likening Native Son to Harriet Beecher Stowe's classic work of sentimental protest fiction. And it was called Everybody's Protest Novel. And he followed it up with a second piece, which was even more critical of Native Son. And his argument essentially was that Bigger Thomas was, was a political ideological construct rather than an actual human being, and that he was uh, essentially a tool by which Richard Wright took apart uh, the fictions of American racism, that Richard Wright had essentially reduced a Black man to his categorization, much like Harriet Beecher Stowe in Uncle Tom's Cabin. The fact is, John, Native Son uh, was always controversial, not just among white readers, but among Black readers, for different reasons, of course. I also want to ask about Richard Wright as a prominent member of the Communist Party, one of their most famous Black uh, voices. He came to represent all the limitations of proletarian realism, the party line of the time. Was that a fair criticism? I don't think it was a fair criticism. Uh, Richard Wright published uh, Native Son in 1940, two years before he left the Communist Party. He had risen in the ranks of the Communist Party after he arrived um, in Chicago uh, as a young man from the South, having made the Great Migration. And it was through the Communist Party and specifically through its John Reed Club uh, for writers that Wright acquired a sense of his voice and sensibility, first as a poet, then as a journalist and a writer uh, of fiction. And you know, what's striking about uh, Wright's uh, so-called proletarian fiction is not just the extent to which it adheres to the codes of the kind of hungry realism of the 1930s, but also the extent to which it departs from those codes and challenges them. There's always a kind of expressionistic surplus to Wright's work. It, it is proletarian fiction, and yet at the same time, it's something more than that. And, and as I suggested in my piece, it's reminiscent in some ways of the burgeoning genre of noir, which of course has its origins in European Expressionism. So James Baldwin was a prominent uh, critic of uh, Bigger Thomas and, uh, and of Native Son, but by the mid-60s, there were new Black writers who considered Bigger Thomas an authentic hero. One of them was Eldridge Cleaver, the Black Panther militant whose book Soul on Ice was a bestseller in 1968. The New York Times named Soul on Ice one of the 10 best books of the year. And then by the 70s, there were Black feminists who were objecting to Bigger Thomas and to Richard Wright. How did this debate play out in Black culture? Well, you know, Richard Wright had published What Until uh, Invisible Man, which in some ways is a, a response and rejoinder to Native Son, was the most famous novel uh, by a Black American. And so everyone felt they had to respond to it. 
in some fashion. Ralph Ellison, of course, had been an early supporter of the novel. The two of them were very close. They'd met in the Communist Party. Richard Wright was a mentor to Ralph Ellison. And Ralph Ellison admired not just the novel, but Bigger Thomas. He saw Bigger Thomas as a, a kind of authentic tribune of Black revolt against racism. Uh, this, of course, is the argument that gets taken up by Eldridge Cleaver years after Ralph Ellison had excoriated Richard Wright in a, a very long essay that he wrote in response to Irving Howe, who had published a piece called Black Boys and Native Sons, which was an essay on Ellison, Wright, uh, and Baldwin. The figure of Bigger Thomas would get drawn into innumerable discussions of the purpose and function of Black literature. Was the purpose of Black literature to depict Black life? Was it to lodge a protest against the constraints imposed by white supremacy? Was it both? Richard Wright had his own answer and, uh, in, in, um, in, and, and made it. Uh, very dramatically uh, in Native Son. So in a sense, he, he set the terms of the debate for many years. In your piece in the LRB, you, you show that part of the problem uh, is that Native Son had been edited by the publisher in the Book of the Month Club, and that, in fact, we did not see the original version of Bigger Thomas until 1992, thanks to the Library of, of America, you've compared the old and new editions. What got edited out? What got suppressed in the version that was read by, by all of us? Well, what got suppressed, I think what's, what, what's most important for us to focus on is the sexual attraction that Mary Dalton, uh, the daughter of the wealthy man who uh, employs Bigger Thomas, has for Bigger Thomas on the fateful night when they go out with her uh, with her, bo her communist boyfriend. There is a scene where uh, Bigger Thomas uh, takes her to her bedroom and they begin to fondle each other. And it seems as though they may, in fact, consummate the act when uh, Mary Dalton's blind mother walks into the room and Bigger Thomas, terrified that he might be found with this white woman and accused of rape, accidentally kills her by silencing her with a pillow. Her attraction to Bigger Thomas was censored, leaving Bigger to appear as kind of the stereotypical black monster who is raping uh, the white woman and then, and then killing her. People who read Native Son until 1992 were unaware that there was this uh, sexual intimacy between Bigger and Mary Dalton. It takes something out that's very crucial. And in fact, I think it helps to explain why Baldwin uh, saw uh, Bigger Thomas as someone who had been reduced to his categorization by white racism. And you also argue there's more to Richard Wright than Native Son. In fact, he wrote another novel, one I don't know anything about, The Man Who Lived Underground. Uh, it's only appeared in print now. You have read it. What is The Man Who Lived Underground? How does it compare to Native Son? The Man Who Lived Underground was published originally um, in a posthumous collection of stories called Eight Men. Um, in a much shorter form. Richard Wright wrote this book um, in 1942, just after the uh, German invasion of the Soviet Union, 
um, at a time when he was becoming incredibly disillusioned with the Communist Party because the party was no longer fighting against racism in the war industry. He began to he began work on this short novel, which is a very Dostoevskyan uh, work, as the title suggests. It's about a working class uh, married black man whose wife is expecting a child who is unjustly accused of, of murder and of attempting to uh, rape his victim's uh, wife. And he flees uh, the police, climbs into a sewer, and ends up living there for some indeterminate amount of time and begins to experience what might be called revelations about the world outside, about the nature of freedom, about guilt. It's a, it's a deeply... Uh, philosophical novel and and quite a fascinating one. One of the people who read this was a left-wing psychiatrist, Frederick Wortham, a professor at Johns Hopkins, who wrote a wonderful little verse about the man who lived underground. Can you tell us what he wrote? He sent right a short poem, and it goes like this. The Freudians talk about the id and bury it below, but Richard Wright took off the lid and let us see the woe. Amazing. Let us see the woe. And that's your sense of the book, too. Very much so. And, you know, the relationship between Wright and Wortham would bloom um, a few years after, the pub, after Wright wrote The Man Who Lived Underground. Uh, Wortham had already published a fascinating essay on the hidden roots of hidden psychological roots of Native Son. Richard Wright was very impressed by it. And the two of them went on to found a psychiatric clinic in Harlem called the Paul Lafargue Clinic, named after the son-in-law of Karl Marx, who was an Afro-Cuban socialist who published a book in praise of, of, of laziness. And uh, essentially what Vertham and Richard Wright believed, and the reason that they created this, um, this clinic, was that Harlemites really needed psychological care for the burden and stresses of racism. And that racism had to be understood as a psychological problem as much as a political and economic one. On the one hand, we have Eldridge Cleaver picking up a kind of celebration of, of Bigger Thomas, and then we have Black feminists of the 70s. Right. I mean, there were, there were essentially two schools of criticism of, of Bigger Thomas. One was the Baldwin-Ellison view that, 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 that Bigger Thomas did not represent the uh, complexity of, of, of Black Americans. As uh, Ellison put it, uh, Richard Wright could imagine Bigger Thomas, but Bigger Thomas could not imagine Richard Wright. Black, what Black feminists, I think, were particularly horrified by was the merciless and cruel killing of Bess, uh, the, girl, the Black girlfriend uh, in Native Son, and also the machismo that ran through much of Richard Wright's work. However, Richard Wright did evolve with respect to the question of gender. When he traveled to Spain in the early 1950s, later the subject of his, of his travelogue, Pagan Spain, he was appalled by the conditions in which women lived and actually drew comparisons between the way that women were forced to dress in Spain and the white sheets 
um, of the Ku Klux Klan. So, and he and he came to see women as being as saddled by oppression uh, as black people were. So his his you know, right evolved far more than his critics were willing to allow for. And the the really the central turning point of his life came in 1946 when he left America, went into exile in France, invited by Levi Strauss published there with the help of Camus, championed by Sartre and Beauvoir, a celebrity and the hero to the existentialists. But he came to object to those who wanted him to serve as a representative writer of American Blacks. Uh, you write, he felt a new form of isolation and claustrophobia in Paris. Tell us about that and about his work in this period you describe him as caught between Stalinism and the American empire. Well, I think that, you know, that Wright, first of all, when, 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 when Wright first came to Paris, he felt a tremendous sense of liberation and gave interviews in which he said that there was more freedom in a single block in Paris uh, than in all of the United States. Um, he reveled in the attention. He held court at, at cafes. He befriended not only Sartre and Beauvoir and Camus, but but Picasso and uh, and uh, various other Parisian uh, celebrities. But I think he also felt cut off from the sources of his inspiration in the United States. Um, I think he suffered from a certain kind of melancholy. Um, he also felt a, a great sense of ideological constriction. His closest friends, uh, many of his closest friends in France, were fellow travelers of the Communist Party. He had left America partly to get away from the American Communist Party. Um, at the same time, he was courted by cold warriors, um, by liberal anti-communists who wanted him to uh, uh, denounce people he'd been close to. And although he had written uh, a long piece explaining his decision to leave the Communist Party in the Atlantic, later a part of his memoir, uh, American Hunger, which was the second expurgated part of his memoir, Black Boy. Um, he uh, did not, um, he, he, he was not interested in becoming a professional anti-communist. Uh, so he felt very much caught between the American empire and Stalinism. Neither of them uh, was something that he could get behind. Um, and I think at the same time, uh, he did feel as though he did, he did experience that burden of representation and he wanted to liberate himself from it and explore new themes and grow, which is what he tried to do uh, in the fiction that he published uh, in Paris, although admittedly it was less successful than his early, his early novels in America. In his late work in Paris, he wrote about how <clears throat> the obstacle <clears throat> in his late work in Paris, he wrote about how the obstacles on the road to freedom were as much psychological as economic. And he wrote a trilogy of books about decolonization. You call them the great achievement of his last decade. They're very little known. Uh, tell us about them. In 1955, Richard Wright traveled to Indonesia to attend the Bandung Conference of Non-Aligned Nations with support from the uh, Congress of Cultural Freedom, which was a CIA-backed uh, organization. Um, he wrote a book on that conference uh, called the, uh, the Color Curtain. This was the second book that he wrote on the decolonizing world. The first uh, was an account of the 
Gold Coast, uh, which later became Ghana, and it was very much about the personality of Kwame Nkrumah, the independence leader who became the first president of independent Ghana. And then he published a book called White Man Listen about the uh, psychological dilemmas and predicaments of people of color, especially elite people of color who were who were uh, leaders of the decolonization movements, but who also felt a certain kind of estrangement uh, from the rural masses. And, um, you know, these books were were not really um, these books were not were not given much attention. Uh, in his own lifetime. They were, uh, first of all, they're, they're very personal books. They're works of reportage, but they're also highly subjective. And they're very much about Richard Wright's own reactions to the people uh, that he meets. For example, when he goes to the Bandung conference, he's approached by a group of Arab journalists who show him photographs of Palestinian refugees. And, and Wright is throttled uh, by the encounter, because he, as he says in the book, um, uh, the ho- you know the Holocaust has just taken place, and oh no, this is the next chapter. Jews <laughs> in Palestine fighting Arabs in Palestine. So um, I think, in in retrospect, you know, these books can be seen as a kind of precocious form of new, what became known as new journalism. Interestingly, Richard Wright. Uh, in James Baldwin's uh, retrospective essay published in 1960, Alas, Poor Richard, was faulted for having ignored the problems of the colonized because of the freedoms that he enjoyed in Paris. Baldwin essentially argued that he'd become a white man in France. In fact, Richard Wright wrote far more, far more extensively, and in some ways more trenchantly about the dilemmas of colonized peoples as a reporter than Baldwin ever did. And yet he still hasn't been given credit for this. Adam Schatz, he wrote a spectacular piece about Richard Wright in the October 7th issue of the London Review of Books. You can read it online at lrb.co.uk. And Adam's new podcast launches later this month. It's called Myself with Others, and it features conversations with Vivian Gornick, Margot Jefferson, Joe Sacco, and others. That's Myself with Others, a podcast coming in late October. Adam. Thanks for talking with us today. Thanks so much, John. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the LA Review of Books and recorded in Los Angeles at our Blythe Avenue studios. Our audio engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is The Nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of The Nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of The Nation. Our theme music is from Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. You can find out more about Start Making Sense at thenation.com. You can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts, at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts.